So there are several items in my closet, in my drawers that, um, that of clothing that I have that I will put on on a Saturday or in the evening or something or even to work or even just to go out. And my wife will look at me and she'll go, um, honey, are you sure you want to wear that? Now, I'm not the brightest bulb in our house. When my wife says that, I, I do understand that um, quite well. And what that means is to me is that it's time for me to change. It's time for me to take whatever I'm wearing and do something different. It's usually because I decide to wear something that um, I really, really like. And it has some kind of value to me, whether it's a t-shirt from high school or college or past youth ministry conferences or whatever it might be. It might be too tight, it might, collar might be worn, there might be moth holes in it, I don't know, something. But it's very, very comfortable, and I like it, and I'm wearing it. And she goes, yeah, I don't think so. And so there's this um, defendant court battle that goes on where I'm the defendant for my shirt, and my wife's the prosecutor, and, you know, she doesn't have to say anything. It's just the look that she gives, and I'm going, all right, you win. You win, and it either goes into the trash or goodwill or it's used as a rag. And then I throw, go through the grieving process and it takes me a while. It's no different. Um, so what I'm going to tell you is I'm going to give you a little secret this morning. And, and I want you to write this down. It's that first point in your handout. And, and it's this. is that change is hard. I know. Revelatory. Change is hard. Now, I want you to say it back to me. Change is hard. Say it again. Change is hard. Exactly. Whether it's the clothes that you try to keep, you know, hidden from your wife, or if it's a movie, or if it's uh, an adjustment in your routine, or it's a move, or whatever it might be. Not a movie, a move. Change is hard. And it's no different in our life as a follower of Christ. When we say yes to Jesus, automatically there, there comes into our life this new nature that he calls um, Christ inside of us, right? The Holy Spirit he gives to us. And so we are saying yes to him, and, and conversely, we're saying no to self. So we've said yes to self our whole life, however long that's been, previous to this. And all of a sudden now we're saying yes to Jesus and no to self. And so that's a huge, huge change. And so what we begin to understand is that change is a lifetime thing. It's not a one-time event. And so what we call that, a church term, is sanctification. It's this process, this progressive time of, right, um, of not, we're never going to be perfect in this life. And so what we're trying to do is narrow this gap between um, this Knowledge that I have about who God is, what he's done, who I am, and what do I need to do, and about actually living out, that out in my life. And, and we understand that this change in my life as a follower of Christ takes place when we begin to see, in a more progressive way, the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And that our hope is not in methods, our hope is not in rules, our hope is not in people, but our hope is in the great and gracious Savior, Jesus Christ, who has, through his death and through his resurrection, broken the power of sin in my life, and he's placed the life-giving Holy Spirit 
in our hearts. And he's called us to look beyond the sin that um, we have been so accustomed to and, um, and the lies of this sin and look towards the glory of God as our Father. And he calls us to live a life um, or to believe by faith that God is bigger and better than any lie or any sin in my life or anything that sin would offer you and I. And that's where this great battle wages itself in our hearts. And he calls us to turn in repentance um, from these desires which we will call idols, these idols in our life, um, the desires of our hearts that, that will put us in, in like a, a prison cell that enslaves us. And, and it begins to slowly corrode what's, what we know to be true and lasting and satisfying in our God. And in Romans 5.10 and Hebrews 4.16 4, um, Jesus Christ, who is our Savior, who died for us, and this is what it says in Scripture, while we were enemies of God. And he invites us with confidence, Hebrews says, to draw near to the throne of grace, that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in the time, in our time of need. Tim Chester wrote this quote, and it says this, We don't change so we can prove ourselves to God. We're accepted by God so we can change. I mean, I love that. We don't have to prove to our Heavenly Father, right, to Him. Because why? Because He cannot love us any more than He does right now. And you've heard this before. No matter how much you change, He's not going to love you anymore. He's not going to love you any less than he does, no, does now, no matter what a mess you make in your life. I mean, it, grace is simple to understand, but it's so hard to grasp because we so desperately want to prove to him that we are worthy. And so the challenge for us is to begin to live out this new identity and it's a little easier for us to do when we're in a setting like this. It's harder for us to do when no one else is around and we wake up on a Monday morning and we go and do our daily routines. But that is the challenge for you and I. And so when we sin, when we sin, we do not trust God and we do not um, worship him. Our struggle then begins to reveal our hearts. And I say this a lot to parents as of late, is that sometimes as moms and dads, we will um, see our children be disobedient or they'll sin, whether small or big, and we'll look at it and we'll go, oh no, and it will just ruin our lives or shatter us or we're disappointed. And I would say, well, rather than be disappointed, rather than, um, oh man, my kid's so horrible or whatever, Look at it more as a gift from God, as an opportunity, because now you've been given a glimpse of your children's heart. And you can attack it with the gospel and go, all right, this is what we need to work on. And it's the same way in your life as it is the same way in mine. 
is that when we sin, it means that we're not trusting God, we're not worshiping him. And, and we're beginning to see a little bit more of the depth of our depravity of our heart. And it's a great opportunity for you and I to tackle the root cause of what is coming out in our life. That sin behavior or that negative um, emotion. I, I read this and I thought it was so good. That faith is trusting God instead of believing lies. And that repentance is worshiping God instead of worshiping idols. Anything other than God. Behind every sin in your life and in my life, behind every negative emotion is a lie. These kind of acts that go against God's nature find their origin in some form of unbelief. And the root of all of our um, behavior and emotions, we understand, is in our heart. And whatever it trusts, whatever it treasures, that's what kind of behavior is going to come out of our life. And so our whole life, from when we say yes to Jesus Christ to when he takes us home, is this um, progressive narrowing of the gap between what I know to be true in my head about who God is, what he's done, who am I, and what am I now to do, and, and, and then um, this functional faith, this obedience part, because that's the hardest part for us to narrow. And that's what this is really what we're called to do, is to narrow that gap between what we know to be true and how we live it out and obedient to it. Um, I'm going to have Travis come up, and I want him to demonstrate something. Um, I want you to picture Travis as a scale. All right, so Travis is going to turn and face to you, and he's going to put his arms out, and Travis is a scale. And on one part of the scale, we have... <clears throat> there you go. <laughs> wow, I didn't know you were a robot. Yeah. There you go. So on one part... Thank you. You're kind of wild. I'm going to move over here. So on one part of the scale is self, and the other part is God. And so I, I know this is simplistic, but I want you to turn this around, Travis. And turn that one around too. So I know this is simplistic, but what happens on a scale if, if I'm putting, you know, 50 pounds of weight on here and there's only two pounds of weight on there? Travis, what's going to happen? Exactly. Right? Are you with me? Too technical? You got it. So when we put a lot of weight here, what happens over here? Okay. When I take the weight off, it balances itself out, right? All right, now turn that back around. When I think too much of myself, right? When I think too much of myself, now I want you to displace the weight thing because this is not going to go according to what you thought. When I think too much of myself, and I want you to keep that balance. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> when I think too much of myself, what happens now? I'm thinking less of God, right? I'm thinking less of God. The God that I said yes to, the God that I worship, begins to become less in my life. But when I begin to elevate God properly, oh. we don't drop God. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> when I elevate God, 
what happens here? Self becomes less, right? Give it up for Travis. Thanks, man. Yeah, you can keep them. I'll sign them later. I know that's simple. But sometimes we forget that. We know ourselves pretty well. And so it's not hard for us to elevate ourselves. We don't know God as well. And so it would stand to reason that if we are to have this high view of who God is, and that conversely then relates to the low view of, of myself being dominant, then it would stand to reason that we need to begin to learn more about who God is. His attributes. And sometimes our emotions get the better of ourselves and we need to speak the truth in light of our emotions. Um, and, and sometimes they will take us to places that are not healthy. And so we need to begin to speak truth to our hearts and say to ourselves repeatedly that God is all I need. I want, I want to say it with me. God is all I need. Say it one more time, but a little slower. Exactly. So when you wake up, that should be something that maybe you say to yourself before everything comes rushing at you, whatever it might be, kids or responsibilities or all the things that you're stressing about for the day, that you begin to just say to yourself, because the psalmist in the book of Psalms would repeatedly talk to himself. So it's okay to talk to yourself. Nobody's going to think you're crazy. So speak the gospel to yourself and say to yourself when you wake up, God, you are all I need today. And that'll begin that process of elevating God and lowering self. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, the moment you wake up each morning, all of your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals. And the first job of each morning consists in shoving them all back in, listen, shoving them all back, in listening to that other voice, taking that other point of view, letting that other larger, stronger, quieter life come flowing in. And so it helps for you and I if we can begin to identify the specific lies behind our sin and the corresponding truth that will set you and I free from that. And so that we're, that's what we're going to do for the next um, couple of weeks. We're going to talk about four life-changing truths about who God is. And we see the four in Psalm chapter 62, verses 11 and 12. And I'm just going to read that quickly for you. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this. The power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, bring, belongs to Steadfast love. And so in that, these verses, we see these key truths about who God is, what he declares about himself, about his greatness, about his glory, about his goodness, and about his grace. And so these are the four things that we're going to look at. And it's not an exhaustive list about who God is. And it's certainly not everything, right? But it's four truths about who God is. And they offer you and I a very powerful tool to be able to then um, address, address most of the sins and emotions that we struggle with on a day-in and day-out basis. And so here are the four. That God is great, which is what we're going to look at today. 
And, and God is glorious, and God is good, and God is gracious. And on each one of those, we're going to look at, we're going to say, God is great, so we do not. And then we're going to fill in the blanks. God is glorious, so we do not. God is good, so we do not. God is gracious, so we do not. And in each one of those, we're going to fill in that, some things that we struggle with. Now, the thing about idols is that we have a ton of what some author would call surface idols, the things that we see, and they're very easily identifiable in our life. But it doesn't get at the root cause of what's going on, and so we want to get at these below-the-surface type of things in our life, and that's what these four things are going to help us identify and deal with. And so we're going to look at the first one this morning, God is great. So what does it mean to be great? I want you to think about that right now. What does it mean to be great? What, is it, what makes something great? And I want you to answer the question with somebody next to you if you feel comfortable doing that. What is the greatest thing that you can think of other than God? Say, so don't, don't give us the church answer right now. What is the greatest thing that you can think of and what makes that great? Do that quickly with someone. So when you and I think of something that's great, we often think of it something that's it's bigger, it's better, it's uh, more valuable than other things. Um, it could be more powerful, it could be, uh, there could be more of it, it could be more, remar more remarkable, um, more exceptional, outstanding, notable, significant, consequential, distinguished, um, more noble. Uh, a definition would be it's unusual, it is unusual or considerable in degree, power, intensity. It's first rate, it is very good, and if it is truly great, there's nothing else like it. Now, when we talk about God is great, we need to understand that sometimes in our culture we begin to devalue words. And we might um, finish, or we might go to a movie, and we might come out of that movie and say, That movie was great. And it might be the best movie you've ever attended. Or you might go to a meal and say that steak or that pizza or those wings were great. And it might be the best thing that you've ever had. The best steak, the best pizza, the best wings, the best whatever you've ever had. But, and I know this is going to be simplistic, but I'm going to say it anyway. Is that even though that is great in that sense, it's not the same great as God. There's a difference, right? There's a difference between that kind of great and when we say God is great. And so I want to help us elevate briefly this morning, elevate our game on the greatness of our God. I want us to think about some things about how great our God is. Think about this, that God spoke, and I'm just going to relate to you a bunch of things that I've read and written down and that kind of thing. Um, God spoke and the stars, Scripture says, jumped to order. And when we live on a, and I'm just going to read this, we live on a near-perfect sphere hurtling through space at about 60, 67,000 miles per hour. It's Mach 86 to pilots. I'm not a pilot, so I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what I've read. So this sphere is also spinning while it hurdles through the atmosphere. So take on an, an extra 1,000 miles per hour at the fat parts, and it's all tucked into this giant hurricane of, star, hurricane of stars. 
So if we were to travel at a speed of 196,000 miles a second, you would encircle the Earth seven times in one second, and you would pass the moon in two seconds. At this speed, it would take you 4.3 years to reach our nearest star and 100,000 years to cross our galaxy. There are thought to be at least 100 billion, and I don't know if this is more or less now, um, this is a little bit old, this research. 100 billion galaxies in the universe. It would take 2 million light years, 2 million light years to reach the next closest galaxy and 20 million to reach the next cluster of galaxies. And you only will just begin to explore the universe. And all of this was created by our God simply speaking a word what the Bible says. In fact, Isaiah tells us that he marked off the heavens with the breadth of his hand. We see that in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12. And obviously this is a spatial metaphor because God is outside of space. But it does give us a sense of the scale of God. So I want you just to hold out your hand. I want you just to hold out your hand and look at it. Because this is what scripture says is that God holds, right, the universe that fits into his hand. I mean, that to me is amazing. I don't even know if I can really totally grasp what that means. But the universe is that big to our God. And Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus sustains it all by the power of his word. One of my favorite speakers is Francis Chan. And he um, gave a talk one time and he talks about um, some things are just some very unique things in our world and the, about the caterpillar that has 228 separate and distinct muscles in its head. Useful knowledge for you to share with your family at Thanksgiving or Halloween or Christmas Sunday. That the average elm tree has approximately 6 million leaves on it and I'm not sure how they know that. I don't know how, you know, if somebody was counting every leaf on an elm tree... But that's, and I don't know if that's true or not, but there's a lot of leaves. And I'm praying, we have some large trees in our backyard, and every year I pray, well, we've only been there a year, so this year I'm praying that the wind takes them and blows them all into your yard. <laughs> and then he goes on and he says, your own heart generates enough, and this might be gross, gross you out a little bit, but I hope it doesn't, but your own heart generates enough pressure as it pumps blood through your body that it could squirt blood up to 30 feet. That to me is amazing. That it's all contained in your body. So signposts of God's greatness are everywhere. I mean, that's just a little tiny bit. I mean, you, I'm sure you have more and more things to say about our creation and the things on this earth and God's greatness. And yet, we continually live like we are the center of the universe, that the world revolves around you or the world revolves around me. I mean, have you ever found yourself rejecting the sovereignty or the sovereign rule of God in your life where you say, no, God, you don't know best right now. Your rule is not good. I don't believe all of this about who you are. Otherwise, why would you let this happen in my life? And there's so many Scenarios where that could play out in your life, where you're late to a meeting and all of a sudden on, on, two, on uh, 204, whatever highway that is, 
as you're coming in and the light you know, is not working and it's blinking red and it's traffic and you're late to a hospital appointment, whatever it might be, which um, happened on Friday. I wasn't going to a hospital appointment, but traffic was backed up and I can imagine that would be extremely frustrating. You go, why now? Or many, many other things where you've tried so hard to save up money and then something happened, your car breaks down and you have to buy a new car and it just totally washes out your finances and you become stressed about what's going on. And then <clears throat> if, if it's the spouse, your husband comes home and he brings this amazing amount of flower bouquet and you know it costs a lot of money and it just takes you over the edge and you just burst into tears or whatever it might be, something like that, that you're just going, God, why is that happening in my life? And in Mark, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the second Gospel of Mark, we see these collection of verses in chapter 4 through chapter 5, verse 43, where Jesus begins to display his control over the natural world, over the, um, the spirit world, we see over sickness and over death. And the stories are told of... Um, really to begin to highlight Jesus' complete authority over all of this. He, we see that he brings a girl back from death um, as easily as you and I might rouse someone from sleep. We see the disciples who are in the boat and they're afraid of the storm even, um, and we know this is not just something that they're just going, oh, I'm afraid, because they're experienced boaters, right? And so it would take a lot for them to be afraid. And so they are afraid. Something terrible is happening. And then Jesus says, but why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith in me? We see a demon-possessed man, and Jesus goes up to him, and he delivers him out of him, and he tames him. A sick woman comes to him with fear and trembling, and Jesus speaks a word. And she's healed and there's peace because of her faith. And we see that he even conquers death and he raises someone from death. God is greater than all of the things that we fear. And these stories don't teach that we'll never face sickness or we'll never face death. That's just not true. That's not the kind of world we live in. Genesis 3 really happened. Sin entered the world. Sin entered you and I. And there's things that are going to happen in our life. But instead, they begin to teach us that, that we don't need to fear the circumstances of life because God is in control, that God is great. And he works for good, right, in us, despite these circumstances, and that's hard at times for us to understand, isn't it? But what happens when you, be, don't, when you, when you begin to not fully trust God's sovereign control in your life? You might begin to take control yourself in some very harmful ways through either manipulation or domination of some people. You might wear yourself out with busyness or frustration. You might take your security and your wealth as a bigger priority than God's kingdom in your life. Or, or, or you might begin to worry. Because when we become preoccupied with bills, 
then money becomes our main, our main obsession. And again, looking at that scale thing, when that becomes our main obsession, right, then what becomes less? And that's God. And really, all of this is because we don't believe our Father knows what we need. And when, in Scripture, we see that Jesus, is go, Jesus goes right to the heart of the problem, and that's our little faith. And he says this in Luke chapter 12. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Or you, oh, you of little faith, and do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. And so think about this in Scripture, what also God does. He determines the number of stars that are in the universe. He gives to all of them their names. He has counted every grain of sand on every seashore. That's amazing to me. He knows the number of hairs on our heads, whether there's a lot or whether there's a little. He knows when a sparrow falls from the sky. He spoke and out of nothing came everything. He declares the end from the beginning. In fact, he is the beginning and the end according to what Revelation says, 21.6. He redeemed the nation of Israel that he said is his own in the Old Testament from slavery by, by, um, by slaying the firstborn. And he has freed us from slavery to sin by bearing our punishment on the cross. I mean, it's amazing, Right? And so no problem is too big for God. And no detail is too small for God. He himself reminds us, you and I, that with him, all things are possible. All things are possible in Christ Jesus. Nothing is too hard. And no problem that you and I are facing is beyond his concern, beyond his care, or beyond his ability. He is God, and he is absolutely great. Oftentimes, we want to take this theology, this knowledge about who God is and his sovereignty, and make this huge debate about his sovereignty and man's free will. And while there's a place for that, we're not always going to know, and we probably will never know fully until God comes back what that's going to be all about. But for us, it becomes a very practical thing because it becomes a very, a very uh, it becomes a daily choice for you and I to say, when I wake up today, am I going to trust, using the scale again, am I going to trust myself or am I going to trust God? And we think through all of these amazing things that Scripture says that we know to be true about who he is. And I would think it would be very clear about where the scale needs to go and what, I mean, I know myself. And I'm beginning to know more about God. I would think I should trust him more in my life. And so here's the phrase for us. God is great. So we don't have to try to be in control. God is great, so we don't have to try to
to be in control. And that's the phrase that we need to begin to um, really resonate with each one of us. That when we begin to understand the depths of the greatness of who God is, it begins to lessen the need, and, or not the, necessarily the desire, but the need um, to be in control and to feel like I need to make things happen. It's that phrase that um, I've heard said a lot is that God's got this. And that's hard sometimes to say that. But the alternative is to have a heart that's not trusting God and believing that. And when we don't, we don't believe that God is in control. And what we're saying is that, God, you can't handle this. You, you don't know what's going on. You can't handle this. That your son's death and resurrection, you know, it didn't prove, God, that, um, that you love me and that you're in control, even though your son was risen from the grave. And we're just not trusting. We have this lie that what we're believing is I need to be in control. And, and when we say that, we're saying that others are here to either serve my plan because now I'm selfish and everything that I do, every decision that I make is to please me, is to make me happy. Then what that's saying to you is that you're here to either serve me or to serve my plan, or I'm going to use you to manipulate you somehow or to completely eliminate you from my life because you're not moving ahead my plan for my desire. A heart not trusting that God is great needs to begin to look at the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because why? Because when it most seemed that the world was out of control was, I believe, when Jesus hung on the cross. God was at work to complete the greatest work of love that we've ever seen. That he raised his son from the dead. When it seemed, I'm guessing, after those days when Jesus died, and they were mourning, and it seemed like everything had been lost. <laughs> what an incredible day when you see Jesus risen from the grave. And Jesus trusted his father and that loving control of his dad. And we can begin to trust the father as well. Psalm 60, or 86, 8 says, There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. Romans eleven thirty three through 36 says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of, of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him all things, to him be glory forever. Amen. You see, God is not only better than anything that sin offers, God is also forever. I mean, the Bible talks about the pleasure of, sh of sin, shin, the, the pleasure of sin. 
Right? And there's no doubt that, and let's just be honest, there's no doubt that there's many sins that do bring pleasure. And there's no point in saying otherwise. But the Bible also tells us that the pleasures, I can't say that, the pleasures of sin are only for a short time. They're not going to last. And so what we're called to do is we're called to look beyond the temporary. We're called to look beyond that present moment and we're called to look to eternity. Um, Thomas Chalmers, and we're going to close with this. Thomas, Thomas Chalmers said, or he argued that we can't simply tell ourselves to stop sinning. We need to direct the desires that sin falsely satisfies toward that which truly satisfies and liberates and that is only God himself. A renewed affection for God is the only thing that will expel sinful desires. A renewed affection for God is the only thing that will expel sinful desires. It's like a child. It's like a little child holding a knife. And let's make it even more gruesome. He's holding a rusty knife. And so if he cuts himself, you know, right, there's going to be all kinds of chaos going on. And so when, when, as a parent, we grasp the, the danger that surrounds that, um, we want to do everything that we can, right, to remove the, the knife, the rusty knife from the little child. And so we might um, shout at him or yell at him or her or whatever it might be to get that away from them. And, and there might be a point where they might reluctantly hand it over, but if you were to offer their favorite toy or their favorite stuffed animal or whatever it might be, I would guess that they would soon, you know, exchange that knife for that favorite toy or that favorite animal. And if you tell someone to stop sinning, at best they may do so reluctantly and they may do so partially. But give them a vision of knowing God and his glory and his greatness and what will happen is that they will gladly root out everything that stands in the way of their relationship with him. And that is the message for today. God is great so that I don't need to try to be in control. We need to begin to elevate our view of who God is. And it starts by understanding that he is great. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. God, we love you. And our desire is to um, think more highly of who you are as God. We're pretty good at elevating ourselves, God. And so I pray that you'll give us the strength. God, give us the power to lessen ourselves, And God, to think more highly of who you are. And God, help us in this constant daily battle of this idea that we're always constantly changing and embracing this lifetime of daily change God in our life and it's this change of moving from self at the center to now you and in this particular case, God, believing that you are great 
and that you are in control and that we can trust you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.